Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's a 2020 year in review show today. We cover the top stories in Hamilton, the Black Lives Matter movement in culture and sports, and the top stories in Ontario and the United States and Canada. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're going to start off with some of the Hamilton issues that uh, that have made the news and continued to make the news over the last 12 months or so. One of them is an issue that's been going on for quite some time, and uh, it has to do with, uh, well, the, the history and the future, I suppose, of, of rapid transit and uh, the light rail transit saga in the city of Hamilton. It was just about a year ago that uh, then-Transportation Minister Carolyn Mulroney strolled into town and told us that uh, the uh, provincial government, the Ford government, was not going to fund this anymore, and uh, that caused a great deal of consternation as you might expect uh we're here now 12 months later and uh i don't know where we are i don't think anybody knows where we are on this the uh, ford government has said well we might reconsider this they had a special citizens panel and uh well we're waiting for their report and we're waiting for the province to react to that as well uh ken mann's got some details about what has gone on and what may happen in the future Bunny Lissick's pronouncement is part of a value-for-money audit of Metrolink's projects. Transportation Minister Caroline Mulroney came under fire from LRT supporters last year when she presented the $5.5 billion cost as the rationale for scrapping the project. But Lissick cites previously unavailable budget documents in describing the estimate as reasonable for the all-in cost of designing, building, and running the line over 30 years. She adds the previous Liberal government's original $1 billion announcement back in 2015 reflected only the initial estimated construction cost. That's only one of the main issues. And, and, and like I say, it goes on and on and on, and we still don't quite know how much is it going to cost. Are they even going to build it? What are the ramifications? How long is it going to be? And we can go on and on and on. But it's not the only issue that uh, was pertinent to, uh, to what was going on at City Hall. A lot of other stuff, and, and I think uh, maybe an, an overarching uh, assessment of what's going on here with, that I think a lot of people are feeling right now is, is city council actually connected with the people of this city? Are they listening to them? Are they, are they, are they listening to what's going on and are they, are they imparting the information that we need to hear? It's been quite a year, really. Uh, to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, to give us an assessment on this. Laura, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. My pleasure, Bill. What a year it has been. <laughs> oh, well, and uh, well, let's let's get into the LRT thing for a second because there are a lot of other stuff I want to get into as well. But uh, you know, we we seem to be uh, hitting the pause button here right now. We're getting mixed messages from the government, mixed messages from the city council on this, uh, and the people in the city right now are saying, "Are, are we going to have to pay for this? Are we even going to have it? We really don't know anything more than we did a year ago." Yeah, and I re- I remember uh, hearing the ridiculous press conference and everything that went down and all the drama of that day when we heard that the project was being pulled by the province. And uh, it was prior to COVID. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, how much of the city's dithering and delays and 56 votes on the issue and everything else led to these escalating costs. And while the when the transportation minister was in town and said, you know, it's way too expensive, everybody was super upset at the numbers, but I think it's quite damning for the project. And I hate to say this, Bill, because I've always been an LRT supporter. I think it was next level for our city. It represented all kinds of change, which you and I have spoken about for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted the project to happen. But when the auditor, you know, was pushed, it was pushed that there be an audit on this by Andrea Horvath, 
in opposition. And the auditor came back and said, yeah, looking at all the costs that have accrued over the years, looking at all the estimates, construction costs, the, the numbers that we heard on that devastating day of that announcement weren't as out of line as many of us believed they were, according to the auditor. So I think now it's going to really come down to what it always does in these situations. You know, everything is expensive. Priorities are always being reassessed. Uh, it comes down to what kind of leadership the city is going to put into this to work with the province to find a way to either mitigate some of those costs or to uh, look at the project proactively. But the, you know, the, the breakdown in communication that we've seen from our city council, the lack of clarity and commitment to this project over the years, it makes it a very difficult project for other funders to get behind. It makes it very difficult for the community to understand what's happening next for people who want to invest in Hamilton. You know, it really is, I think you brought off the, the top, the kind of overarching narrative in the city. Yes, there, I don't think council's been listening to us as citizens, and I wrote an op-ed or two about that recently mm-hmm. as a spectator. But what I see is the overarching narrative when I look at all the things that happened in 2020 is so much mismanagement by our city leaders and all the costs that we're incurring. It's not just LRT. There's lawsuits, and there are all kinds of you know impending lawsuits and fines and things because our city council just doesn't seem to be leading very well, and part of not leading well is not listening. But this mess around LRT and the fact that you and I, who have been paying attention to the issue for years, have no real clarity on what's happening other than the auditor's recent report, I think it just goes to the fact that um, we need better leadership in 2021 in this city. Well, that's a, a great segue to get into what I wanted to talk about, which is another overarching issue that's been going on, I guess, for about a year now. Uh, I know that all the years you've been working with Power Group and, and the, the number of clients that you've been working with, Laura, you've, one of the consistent messages you've always said is, look, if you screw up, own it, uh, admit it, and move on, and apologize and move on. Uh, apparently, City Council didn't get that message, uh, and I want to bring up Sewage Gate, okay, which is something that apparently we found out about uh, or around the middle of this year, that City Council had been sitting on for months, and this had to do, of course, with billions of liters of, of sewage that was going into Shadow Creek. Uh, they didn't tell us about it, even though they knew about it. And I guess they said the legal advice they were getting was, let's not make this public because we could get sued. Well, guess what? They're getting sued anyway. Uh, the province is making them clean this up. This was a, a just a, a terrible mess right from the beginning. And again, it goes all the way back to what you just talked about, about lack of communication and lack of transparency. Well, Sewergate is the biggest issue that I've ever seen hit the Hamilton population, if you will, in terms of people's reaction. I mean, there have been a lot of terrible things. The, the Red Hill uh, and the Judicial Inquiry, thankfully, for that. That's on my list, too, yeah. In the spring, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll find out more of what happened there. It certainly looked as though the city lied, and we know that people died, and we need to find that out. Um, but so the Red Hill, terrible communication on that front. It had to be exposed by the media. But when it comes to Sewergate, even more so than the Red Hill, I think what got people so angry in the city was it wasn't just the mismanagement of a gate being open for four years and not being noticed by the city and leaking 24 billion liters of mixed sewage into a world biosphere. It was the fact that when they knew about it, council consciously decided to keep the extent of it from us, which is really the coots cover-up. And that was a betrayal. And they didn't even tell the, the, the Royal Botanical Gardens. They didn't even tell Burlington. I, I was, I think, the one who tweeted the mayor of Burlington and said, do you know about this? 
And the response was, uh, no, we haven't heard about it. The day that story broke, Laura, the day that, that, that we found out about this, just happened to be uh, uh, one of the days that uh, Burlington Mayor Mary Mead Ward was on our show. She was doing the Mayor's Town Hall. Right. And she was, she, was, she was just shocked by this. She said, how could they do this? I mean, we're partners. They were putting money into this. Uh, you know, Mark Runciman from the RBG was saying, wait a second here. You know, we're, we're supposed to be working together on this, and they kept this from it. I mean, it, this was a betrayal, really. It was a betrayal. And so, you know, the the fact that our partners that share that water, we're hearing from it from people other than the mayor, and the fact that we found out about the leak again, council didn't tell us. I mean, so that was a betrayal. But beyond the betrayal, beyond the hurt feelings and the lack of trust and the broken trust with our local government that has permeated so many other issues and events in 2020, is the fact that it costs us money. All these things mm-hmm. cost us. Not only do they have to pay for the remediation now, which we're going to pay for, you know, in the millions, but the fact that uh, they also had asked for an extension, the province came back and accused them of kind of a do-nothing approach to this. I mean, the leadership that is lacking on these issues, the delays and the lawsuits, we pay for them, Bill. There's no magic pool of money that floats in from somewhere else. As taxpayers, every time our government doesn't communicate effectively, doesn't do the right thing, mismanages its job, we end up paying for it. And we are going into a very difficult economic recovery from this pandemic. And we're not getting the respect of, of open, honest communication on so many of these issues and many others on our list this morning, I'm sure. But we're paying for it. And I always want Hamilton people to think, what are my taxes going to? Well, a lot of it is going to mismanagement, and that is very painful. It's a tough pill to swallow in an already tough year. You mentioned the Red Hill Inquiry, which is ongoing. Actually, it's been stalled for the last little while, I guess because of the pandemic. But that's another situation where they were less than forthcoming with information that we should have been told. Uh, This is going to cost the city of Hamilton taxpayers an awful lot of money as well. Absolutely. And I pushed for the judicial review, which is going to be expensive, because we need transparency on it. People died on that highway. <laughs> you know, People died. Uh, if we don't hold our government to account, and they're not telling us the truth, we have to bring in other judicial bodies to investigate, and there's a cost to that. So I'm not suggesting that... Um, you know, we don't have to pay for some of these things. We do. We have to pay for the co- the, the cleanup of coots, uh, Shadok. We have to uh, for all of our safety and health. And we have to pay for a judicial investigation to see what they're up to. But the common thread through this is why do we have to keep paying for their mismanagement on these issues? Some of these are life and death issues for Hamiltonians. We're a tough town. You know, we don't complain easily. We complain when things are pretty dire. And there are some dire things that have happened in 2020. And even looking at the news now, we're talking, there's a counselor who wants to, you know, throw all judicial possible avenues at an integrity result that he doesn't like. Who's going to pay for those? You know, is it coming out of his pocket? I don't know. But we have to just look at these and add up these lawsuits and these fines and everything else and say, Hamilton, we need to be better managed and we need to have better communication up front so that we don't get into these terrible situations. You mentioned off the top my the advice to clients. Absolutely. Leaders look at a situation. If they screw up, they admit it. They try to fix it. And you save a lot of money doing that as opposed to what we've been seeing as a trend here in our local governance. Laura, I want to 
put a couple of issues together here, which are, are somewhat disconnected, but they, they, they well, you'll, you'll understand the thread here in just a second. It's going on at the physical place of Hamilton City Hall. Uh, one was the hangover from the LGBTQ issues from the year before, uh, and the concern of the, the lack of, of, of empathy, I think, that a lot of people felt that City Council was displaying about that. As a result, there were a number of rallies that were held in the City Hall forecourt. Uh, and on top of that, of course, the tent city, which happened. Uh, and again, uh, the accusation was is that City Council was not listening, not paying attention, and, and, and very, in very many people's minds, we're not sympathetic to what was going on here. Uh, and again, it's, it's it's the accusation, and I think you know we need to talk about this. Is are these people tone deaf? Are they not looking out the front window of their offices and saying, "Look what's going on"? The people in the city are upset, and you're not there. What's going on here? Well, I think you use the right word, and it's empathy. And so if you go back to what happened, I know not everybody can relate to the violent attack that happened at Pride. I certainly know that if I was at a picnic with my family and someone showed up with hate signs and, you know, tried to sort of fight and attacked me, I wouldn't put up with it. But not everybody was there. Not everybody has a direct connection. So I understand that some people might feel a little separated from some issues where they don't have direct experience. But that's why we expect our elected representatives to represent us. We expect them to listen to their advisory groups like the LGBTQ advisory. We expect them to do the right thing. And so when we saw white supremacists and, and another, other people showing up in front of our city hall forecourt and, you know, uh, harassing members of the LGBTQ and newcomers to our community, a number of us as civic, civic leaders had to show up on Saturdays because our mayor and councillors, most of them, weren't coming out and weren't decrying that and saying, you know, protect our citizens. And then when you add to that what happened with the, the tents on the forecourt recently, all that really they were asking for was a direct communication conversation with the mayor who was just steps away. And so the idea that it got as out of control as it did and it escalated and embarrassed the city again. I mean, leadership takes empathy. And yes, you're not going to hear what you want to hear. And yes, you might be challenged. And yes, there might be some awkward media moments. But that's part of being a public leader. You still go out. You still talk to your citizens. You still listen to them. And so had there been a better response after the violent attack at Pride from our city leaders and our mayor, quicker, more empathy, it would have done a lot. Had there been a real conversation done in front of people on social media so people could understand what the city is doing for affordable housing and the urgent need for housing, that would have gone a long way to build trust and to make people believe in our city leadership. But instead, it turned out to being letters being written and delivered by security guards. I mean, it was ridiculous, Bill. Why can't our city leaders get stop being so defensive and just say, listen, there's a host of problems. All cities have them. White supremacy and anti-LGBTQ sentiment is not new to Hamilton, although we are the epicenter for hate in the country now. Uh, but homelessness is not new to Hamilton or any other city. There are solutions. Helsinki has a housing first policy that is working. We can do things, but we have to communicate with each other and show some empathy and have some conversations. And I think that's what people want from this council, not perfection. Just stop hiding things. Stop hiding and have conversations with citizens. So how we've got about 30 seconds left here, but in, looking forward just for a second here to 2021, uh, there were some wounds in this community right now, and it's, it's at the municipal level, and there's a disconnect between city council and, and a number of different groups that, that have some real issues that have to be dealt with here. Can, can, those, can that bridge be, be re reinstated? I mean, can we do that? I mean, what's council have to do? 
Well, I think there's always a way to bridge things. I mean, there is an election coming up on October 24th, 2022, and I think that there will be a real push for some change. But in the interim, we all have to live together, work together, and help people through the pandemic in this city. And there are people who are absolutely struggling. It is life and death. So we can't wait just until then. We have to work together now. And working together means listening. It means actually hearing opinions you don't agree with, getting out of your entrenched position, and hearing them going to the experts, seeing what can be done, trying to create a new plan. We have to bridge this. We're heading into a dark winter, and there are people living on our streets, and there are people who are really, as you said, suffering, Bill. We need to start a better conversation in 2021. Let's just have a better conversation, Hamilton. I think we can make improvements. Yeah, and just don't hear people. Listen to them and see what they have to do. Uh, It's going to be an interesting year. Laura, as always, I want to thank you for your contributions over the last 12 months. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, All the best uh, of the holiday season to you and to Rob and the kids and, uh, and of course, to Maz the Wonder Dog. And have a great Christmas. (laughs) And to you, your family, and all of your listeners. We all have to get through this together, Bill. Let's all be safe. You betcha. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Racial intolerance and, and issues uh, with human rights are not new to uh, to the year 2020. It's been going on for generations, for decades, uh, for centuries, some people would argue, and I think there's a lot of justification for that. But in 2020, it seemed to hit a fever pitch in, in streets right across North America. This was the chant many people heard. Black Lives George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, Tony McDade, so many others that, that made the news today, for this year for all the wrong reasons. People that were killed uh, at the hands of police officers and uh, black people that were killed at the hands of police officers. Uh, and it has happened before, going back to, oh, we can remember Trevon Martin, of course, uh, many, many years ago, back in 2013, I think it was. But this year, it seemed to it seemed to hit a, a peak. There seemed to be a, a, all of a sudden uh, a, recognix, a recognition that this does matter, and that these, this is an issue that has to be discussed, not just in society, but in professional sports as well, uh, who seem to turn their back on issues like this in the past. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Donovan Bennett. Donovan is a host, writer, producer, and podcaster with Roger Sportsnet. Donovan, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. No worries, my pleasure. As we were just saying in the preamble here, this this is not a new issue. It goes back quite some time. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, of course, the ex-San Francisco quarterback, uh, recognized this some years ago, taking a knee during the national anthem. Uh, he was vilified by the president, of course, by and the NFL basically turned their back on him. But all of a sudden, uh, people started to look at some of the things that were happening in 2020 and said, you know what, maybe Kaepernick was right. What What changed people's attitudes? It's a great question, and I've, I've thought about that as well, um, because uh, it has been going on for a long time, and, and you mentioned a lot of the names, and there's, you know, sadly, Canadian uh, names as well, Andrew Lopez, yeah. DePonte yeah. Miller, so it, it's certainly an issue uh, that has an invisible border, and uh, when when we had the conversations when people started to claim they were listening and learning and, and PR statements were put out after the death of George Floyd. If I'm being honest, I was a little bit cynical. I felt a little bit jaded. The, Ahmaud Arbery, who you also mentioned, you know, was uh, the victim of, of violence um, that was racially motivated just before that. Uh, Breonna Taylor was as well, but there, there obviously was no video. And, and, and for whatever reason, that video with, with George Floyd, changed the conversation more people were willing to have it and i don't know if it's the symmetry of a knee being placed literally on george floyd's neck 
as he died, and Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, hoping people would recognize that this was a real issue. Um, but, but ironically, the conversation started, and there was a bit of a revisionist history on, okay, maybe now we understand what Colin was kneeling for. Maybe it wasn't about the troops or the flag or just being an irritant. Maybe it was being a voice for the voiceless. And so as we've all had more time to think, uh, to contemplate things, and I think also have a little bit more empathy, we all have to think collectively in the global pandemic that we're in, we started to have a, a couple more evolved conversations about the racial pandemic we've been in for a long time. So, so in many ways, Colin Kaepernick was ahead of his time in forcing this conversation on the masses. You, you hit on something here that I think is probably very germane to this conversation. We saw George Floyd die right in front of our eyes. Uh, I mean, we, you know, there was Ferguson in, in Illinois, there was Charlottesville, and those were terrible. And we saw we saw the video of of, of the confrontations. But you know, okay, well, what caused this? What are these people all upset about? We saw George Floyd die. He, we saw the, the the knee on the neck. We saw him choke to death and, and say, "Please let me go." I mean, pleading for his life. Uh, how could you not be sensitive to something like that? Yeah, but in the black community, to be honest. The, the empirical evidence has not been enough in the past. Yeah. That's why Rodney King was so transformational, because finally people said, okay, well, we've been talking about this, and you haven't believed this, but now, luckily, because of security camera footage, we have evidence to show you what we're talking about, and it didn't matter. I, I saw Tamir Rice play with a toy gun at a park, and he was killed within seven seconds of his life, and, and he was you know, uh, a preteen at the time. I saw Eric Garner uh, be choked to death because of loose cigarettes. So, so I think the difference was the length of time, eight minutes. 46 yeah. seconds, right? Like we, we don't even create content that that's long because we know we're not going to be able to hold people's attention. Well, good luck trying to, to, to turn away from that video and how casual everything was. You know, the officer had his hand in his pocket while he took someone's life. People were watching. Other officers were more worried about people staying on the sidewalk than someone intervening to save a life. I think how routine the proceedings were in this video specifically and the duration of the video really, really shook people at their core. And, and long-lasting. And, and it just it, it seemed to resonate with people all of a sudden. And uh, we saw the reaction uh, like never before. I mean, those are, are, of our listeners, and, and myself included, can remember uh, the early 1960s. I can go back to, you know, way back when in the late 1950s, the race riots that were occurring, uh, Martin Luther King and the great work that he did, and of course. And, uh, and, and we saw that happen. And, and, and we saw the, 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 I guess, the manifestation of that. It seemed to die off, and I think it was maybe because we just had other things on our minds. We weren't paying attention. Uh, the black community certainly never lost sight of this, but we seemed to thought the other way too many times, as Bob Dylan said in Blowing in the Wind. How many times you know, do you have to turn before you turn and said, hey, there's something going on here? Uh, George Floyd brought it back to us, more than Trevon Martin's death, but more than so many other things did, because it was right there, uh, and we saw what happened. And all of a sudden, not only we as a society, Donovan, but the pro sports world took notice of this as well, which they had never done before. They paid lip service, of course, to, to these issues, but there really seemed to be, a, a, I thought, a concerted and hopefully a sincere effort uh, by all pro sports to say, you know what, we've, we've got a problem here. We have to deal with it. 
Yeah, and, and there was a, a, a change. And you mentioned the 50s and 60s, and that was a time when athletes were activists, where, where the platforms yeah. that they had really, really mattered, whether it was uh, John Smith and Tommy Carlos in, in the Olympics or, or Muhammad Ali and, yeah. and Bill Russell or Billie Jean King. Uh, and then we lost that for a bit. The money was too great. That the athletes were literally brands and corporations, and they wanted to speak to both sides of the aisle and really, to be frank, to sell to both sides of the aisle. So you really didn't hear from an athlete unless it was something that was very calculated and, and, and uh, you know very manufactured. And, and if they did, Donovan, if they did speak out, we usually were dismissive of it. Like, what are you complaining about? You're making millions of dollars, buddy. You know, back off. Uh, it was just a, a very insensitive attitude we seem to have. Correct. I mean, I remember Steve Nash going to an all-star game, and, and he wore a T-shirt saying, uh, uh, shoot uh, for peace and not, not shoot for war, something along those lines. And he was really, really critical criticized for that and that's like you know now when we look back at it it's a pretty um you know <laughs> a pretty uh, easy statement to understand but, but 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 i think what happened and i i give you know serena williams and lebron james credit for really leading this yeah mm-hmm. the athletes themselves became their own brand their own corporations lebron james he has his own uh, media company he has his own agency if, if, if he speaks out who is he really going to be um, putting at, at harm's way, right? He is a driver. Um, he, when he does endorsement deals, he takes stake in companies, not just being paid a, a fee. And so th- that empowerment from, from athletes at that level um, with the freedom to speak without real consequence allowed the rank and file to say, okay, well, they put their, their, their toe in the water and, and everything was fine, so, so I can jump in. And so we're seeing, you know, whether it's the, the WNBA athletes and women have always been at the forefront uh, of this movement to uh, trickling down to sports that have been a little bit more conservative, like Major League Baseball, and, and to a lesser extent, like hockey. We're now seeing athletes being a little bit more comfortable to, to come out of that shell. And the, and the change that we've seen this summer is that it's not just racialized athletes. It's not just minorities. They've loudly said, and, and I've loudly written, for this conversation really, really to be lasting, we need some allies in terms of our, our celebrities and our athletes to speak up. And, and we're starting to see that um, as well. And I think when it's not just the oppressed looking for solutions for the oppressor, but it's everyone saying, I'm going to show you what side of history I want to be on on this issue, and th- that's when we can get some real change. And in, in terms of sports, it's not just the athletes. Advertisers are now being asked, mm-hmm. where are you on this issue? Do you really support the, the Washington, uh, formerly Redskins, now the Washington football team? Because uh, we're not going to spend our dollar as, with you as a consumer if this is the type of thing uh, you want to be a part of. So, so we're seeing it from, from corporations all the way down to athletes who act now like mini corporations. Is is that what one of the motivating reasons for this? I, I hope that's it's not the only motivating reason. But, but you just mentioned about uh, that kind of racial discrimination too. I mean, you know, the debate about the Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, the Edmonton Eskimos, uh, and, and the Chicago Blackhawks, and on and on. That's been going on for decades, and and people just were deaf to it. They were tone deaf to it. They didn't pay much attention. All of a sudden, because of the light that was shone on on what's going on now with with, with racial discrimination. These issues are being addressed all of and this year, 2020 is going to go back as, as the year that all of a sudden we, we woke up and said, whoa, yeah, you're right, we do have a problem here. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm not really too fixated on, on the motivation, right? I'm outcome-driven. As long as it happens, right? 
to that place. Correct. But 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 I I would I I wouldn't you know uh, be be honest if I didn't say well of course like these are for profit businesses uh, their profit margin drives what they do and they are taking accounting of of the the world and the marketplace and saying okay we we, we clearly can't be all things to everyone. And let's look at, at the world. And, and when you look at the immigration patterns in, in both Canada and United States, we are fastly becoming uh, a multicultural society. The, the tanning of our, our nation is something that's happening and it's projected to happen even more so. So we have to directly speak to some consumers that, quite frankly, we didn't care about before, that were overlooked and underserved. We have to show that we have a diversity of ideas and thought in this uh, topic is one way that you can do that. So, so certainly, I think within some corporations, it's driven by morals. But I think with other corporations, quite frankly, it's driven by money. Uh, either way, I'm just happy we're moving closer to the direction we should be. You talked about getting allies in this, and, and you're right. I mean, there were, I'd use the phrase activists, and you mentioned, uh, you know, t- John Carlos and Tommy Smith, of course, the two uh, American track guys in the Mexico City Olympics with the, the fists raised in the air. Uh, and there have been others. Bill Russell, of course, I'd spoken from the, the Boston Celtics. What happened in this last 12 months especially, Donovan, that brought other athletes, uh, white athletes, to the side and said, you know what, I'm with you. I'm standing with you now. Because they didn't always do that before. No, they didn't. And, and you heard from white athletes, um, and some I think it was an excuse, and some I think it was you know, a, a, a realistic, uh, heartfelt um, situation. But you heard from white athletes saying, I didn't think this was my conversation. I didn't think this was my place. I didn't want to say the wrong thing, um, you know, because it is a very nuanced, delicate uh, topic. And, and I think what we, we've, we've heard, you know, what we've heard from the public, the community, you know, journalists and, and other minority athletes is that you know this is not a, a, a perfect conversation right we're going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations there's going to have to be some unlearning on how we, we look at things look at people look at subjects and issues and, and as long as you, you you come to the conversation you know with you know some positive goals in mind and, and um in openness to, to really learn um and, and you know Put yourself in someone else's shoes. That's that's really all we're asking. We're, we're never all going to agree on everything, even within the the black community. People need to understand that we're not monolithic. That there is great divide on these very issues. Right? The, the, to fund the police is not just something that is divisive in a greater community. It's also divisive within the black community. So, so we're not asking everyone to, to automatically understand all these issues think uh, alike because if everyone's thinking alike then really no one's thinking but we want everyone to be a part of the conversation i think that's something that that you know white athletes and and uh, have, have started to, to really recognize and speak towards um because if we're going to have our back uh, on on the field if we're going to say together everyone achieves more as a team then also t- together everyone always needs to matter and, and that's the genesis of the black lives matter movement have we turned a corner here? Is this is this an aberration, or is this the the new way of looking at things? I like to think so. I try and be an optimist, just because it costs the same as being a pessimist. <laughs> so, so you might as well uh, look at things with rose-colored glasses. This is what I do know. I do know that 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 progress is glacial. It moves really slow. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, when you look back at historically. You know, it, we're generally, it tends to move in the right direction. So do we sometimes go sideways and backwards? Certainly. Does it happen as fast as, as we want it to? No. But I think the difference with this 
new generation, and when I say new, I'm talking about people even younger than myself, is that they have some urgency with, with these conversations. It's not just about race. It's about the climate. It's about equal pay. They, they have grown up in an on-demand world where they get what they want immediately, and it's served directly to them. So, so unlike you know the 50s and the 60s, you know where our, our prophets and our leaders and Martin Luther King said I, he doesn't know if he's going to see the mountaintop. We have people saying, no, I expect to see that mountaintop right now, and I want accounting yeah. of how you think we're going to get there, um, and, and then I'm going to hold you accountable every step of the way up the mountain. And so I, I am optimistic uh, that that we are going to get there. Um, the the time. Uh, line, I'm not sure, but, but you can't legislate um, the timelines and success. And I think 2020, certainly, it's, it's been a terrible year on many, many fronts, but on this conversation, it, it has been a success. Sadly, though, uh, more lives were lost and ruined for us to get there. Absolutely. And I, I think you're onto something here, too, because we've always had this conversation and we've looked at things like this and we've looked at uh, the Kaepernick's and the other things that have gone on in sports and said, yeah, that's wrong. Boy, somebody really should do something about that. Uh, there seems to be a, a, a generational change of attitude here to say, no, we're going to do something about it right now. And you, my elected leader, you're going to do it. And if you're not, then you're not going to be my leader anymore. Uh, there's, a, there's a real change here. There's a, a, you're right. It's, it's, let's get this done here and now. Yeah, and and you know there are certainly some ills to the the cancel culture culture that we we find ourselves in. But but I think one of the positives is that proactively people think maybe a little bit more before they do something, maybe a little more before they say something, and that's you know, certainly our public officials. Um, but but even you know our great athletes and and celebrities who, who also um, have a voice in a, in a big megaphone. And I think again that's because the younger generation literally will find receipts on, on where you are on all these issues. Um, and if they're not happy with it, they'll certainly let you know about it. Donovan Bennett uh, from Sportsnet. Uh, love your work, Donovan. Great to have you on the program today. Uh, all the best to you. Uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, we'll talk again soon in the new year, I hope. Thank you so much, and I look forward to it. Take care. Take care. Donovan Bennett from Sportsnet. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We continue our look back on uh, this year and what a year it's been. And, and obviously, anytime we're going to talk about 2020, the pandemic and, and of course, COVID-19 is going to dominate the news because it affected just about every facet of our lives, uh, including politics, by the way, on both sides of the border. But uh, I want to focus in on, on our home province right now, the province of Ontario, because it's been quite a year in this province, especially because of the pandemic and some of the uh, the, the fallout from that. And uh, front and center, of course, in any situation like this, uh, when there are crisis situations in politics, well, it's the Premier who is front and center, and Doug Ford certainly was. And, uh, well, here's, here's the Premier just recently. We can't do it overnight and leave these people with the inventory, uh, especially the restaurants with food inventory. We, we need to give them an opportunity to uh, get this done, and this will carry on till uh, January. All right, that's uh, the Premier's explanation for the latest round of, uh, of shutdown that has gone on here, and he's taking a lot of heat for it. Uh, not for the first time either. This is obviously a very moving target when we're talking about the pandemic and the response to it and how the government is going to respond to it. And uh, it's uh, it's been quite a year because of that and uh, just about everything else that's happened at Queen's Park and with the Premier and uh, and his his team uh, has been uh, impacted by what's gone on with COVID-19. Joining us to talk about all this is a uh, good friend, Richard Brennan, retired journalist who covered Queen's Park for many, many years, of course, for the Toronto Star. Uh, Badger, great to have you with us. Uh, best of the season to you. Yes, Merry um, Christmas to you, Bill. Uh, 
about a year ago, I guess, about last December, uh, you know, just getting warmed up, I guess, in, in the first little part of the term as the Premier, uh, Doug Ford was about as popular as a skin rash, and there were a lot of things that were going on here because of his attempt, you know, to get Ron Tavener as the head of the OPP and a few other things. Then came the pandemic, and things changed, didn't they? Well, it did, because uh, it gave him an opportunity to put those all those things you just spoke of uh, behind him and, and you know, take charge as best he could with the, with the pandemic which, you know, really came to fore. I mean, I guess we wrote, you know, I think the first Toronto Star stories were back in December about the pandemic elsewhere. And then it came here, and but we really, we got, really hit us in uh, in March. And and he rightly took charge and, and, and said, you know, I'm I'm here, I'm the boss, and uh, let's let's do what we can. And then, but, you know, that always leads to, you know, did he do the right things? And that's what's what's happening now. It's it's interesting. You, you, your point's well taken because there were a lot of things that were going on. Uh, you know, they were suing the federal government because of the, uh, the the carbon tax situation, and 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 he was getting a lot of heat for that. And he lost his initial court challenge to that. It's still going to go before the Supreme Court, of course. So there there was a lot of uh, a lot of things going on here, and all of a sudden, all that gets pushed to the side, doesn't it? As all of as I think we all realize that the severity of what this pandemic actually meant. Uh, you're right. I remember reading that story in the Star about a year ago. And figured, oh, that's too bad. Uh, you know, that's over there, though. It's never going to have much of an impact here. Uh, and boy, by by about February or so, we were in it up to our necks. And and let's face it, we were worried, and we we're looking for leadership. Oh, oh, absolutely. And and he he, you know, he provided that, to, and and his numbers went up. His uh, public popularity certainly went up as a result of, uh, result of it. Uh, you know, and. People will argue that that has waned somewhat since those days, and question some of the, the efforts he, he's made. But I'll tell you, I I wouldn't have wanted to have been in his position because you know nothing you, you can say or do is going to be uh, you know accepted by by everyone out there, and and it's really now we're we're seeing that people are really really even more so before than before people are looking for somebody to blame and he was the boss he was the guy that said he was the leader and he was going to show leadership and he's going to wear it and he is wearing it somewhat now but again who had the magic formula to say this is how you this is how you deal with this pandemic of course the experts are saying you know we should have we should have you know tackled it even earlier and uh, and maybe they're right, but I'll t- tell you, everyone around the world has struggled with how to cope with this, and Ontario's no different. In the early days, and, and we'll go back to, the, like you say, the late winter, early spring, uh, one of the things that that I think struck me uh, from a very positive standpoint, and, and you and I talked about it at the time on the program here, uh, was that, that the fact that Doug Ford all of a sudden dropped this partisan vent that he had towards everything he did he he did not like justin trudeau he doesn't like liberals he didn't like ndp he didn't like anybody unless you were a progressive conservative in his government uh but as soon as this hit all of a sudden there was this immense sense of cooperation like hey we have to work together uh and 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 he let his 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 partisan stuff go to side and he became a team player along with the prime minister and others and actually developed a relationship with the federal government that i didn't think was ever going to happen well, it, it's funny you should mention that. Cause I, I'm glad you did, 
Because I was just speaking to someone uh, at uh, the Hamilton uh, City Hall just yesterday, and they were saying they've never seen the cooperation between all levels of government like there has been now. You know, where everybody's in it together and everybody's kind of rowing in the same direction. And it was it was nice to hear that for a change because you you well know, everybody out there well knows that governments have not always got along and have pulled in different directions and quibbled and, and barked at each other. But in this case, they really worked together for the common good. And, did, you, and did you think you were going to see that happen, though? Sorry? Did you ever think you were going to see that no, happen? Never. Because, no. I mean, you covered you know, Queen's Park for many years. You did Parliament Hill for many years. And there was always this, okay, uh, you're a provincial politician. Okay, you have to hate the federal government. I don't care who you are. Uh, but you, you're going to argue about health care. You're going to argue about transfer payments. You're going to argue about the carbon tax. The, here's the list of stuff. And, and you know, you're never going to agree on any of this stuff. So the, the, the battle lines are drawn. And they would take political advantage of that. You know, like, hey, I'm the guy who's going to defend you, Ontario, or you, Manitoba, or whatever, against this, this insensitive federal government. But all of a sudden, in February or March of last year, for the most part, the premiers, including Doug Ford, it simply said, you know what, we're all on the same team here. Let's make this thing happen. And wouldn't it be nice if it lasted? Yeah. Uh, I, so I doubt that. I think, I think it's, I think it's starting to fade seeing, now. We're already seeing uh, uh, Premier Ford going out to the federal government for the way they're, they're uh, testing and uh, at travelers at, at the airport. Mm-hmm. And he's saying they're not doing enough, the federal government not doing enough to, you know, to screen people as they come through. And the federal government says we're doing we're we're doing exactly what we have to, and so on and so forth. So maybe maybe that's already starting. Maybe this 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 uh, you know this romance uh, the bloom is off the rose, it, which is too bad. But because we've got, I, I I think it was Biden who said you know our worst days are ahead of us, not behind yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah, you said that yesterday again. Yeah, and and that's so appropriate. I mean, we we we're in tough times. I mean, you just have to look at the stories about the long term care homes and and the people that are languishing in there and and dying. When, and, and and there's nothing anybody can do about it because there's not enough staff. And so you know, there's no there's no time for bitterness right now. This is again the, the time for all governments to cooperate. And, and not carpet each other. Well, and, and the, the long-term care situation, I think, is, is probably very, very important to this discussion. Uh, because, as you mentioned, uh, you know, when he started rolling out the provincial response to the, to the pandemic, uh, he got... He got thumbs up. I mean, he got his approval rating went up, and and there were some people that would, had been critical of him for quite some time, and I think justifiably so, who said, you know what, he's got a handle on this. He's he's doing a pretty good job. He's actually leading the province. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, they, they, we were all too slow to respond to this, but once they started to respond, it, he seemed to be pushing all the right buttons. Uh, but the one thing that he has not been able to get a hold on is the long-term care crisis. Uh, and other provinces have. I mean, Quebec has spent a lot more money on it than we have. They've seemed to have, have made some inroads into this. Uh, and Ford just can't seem to get, get going on this thing. I mean, you know, we're into the second wave now, and, and it's worse than it was the first time uh, after he had guaranteed that, you know what, I'm going to fix this thing. 
And uh, I know it's kind of hard to fix a car when you're still driving it on the highway. I mean, you know, we're still in the pandemic. But other other jurisdictions have tried to do something about the long-term care crisis because it's not just an Ontario problem. Ford doesn't seem to have any answers to it. It's It's been his blind spot. Yeah. And, and I don't... I, I wish I could shed some light on it. I don't understand it. I mean, we're, we're getting we're getting uh, long-term care homes where the number of cases are, you know, having, like, for example, one case increased tenfold in eight days. And we still don't have the staff that's necessary. They said they were going to do something about that and increase staff, you know, put money aside for increased staff, et cetera. But it's not happened. There are there are seniors, our seniors in homes, who haven't can't get enough. They don't have access to oxygen, and they need it because they've got COVID, or or they've got you know various other uh, you know system multi system problems, and they're just not being looked after because all the staff has got it too. It's, yeah, it's, I, I don't know why why he has responded so glacially on this one because it's it's just appalling what's happening in our long-term care homes and i don't see i don't see it improving I mean, you've got you've got doctors who are you know who got it themselves that worked in long-term care homes putting out a public appeal to their colleagues please help well that shouldn't happen that help should have been there months ago and it's still not there is he falling back in, I'm talking about the Premier here, falling back into bad habits that he had in the first year or so of his as, his tenure as the, as the Premier of this province, uh, where he was listening to the people that supported him as opposed to listening and looking for the greater good? And, and I, I mean, you know, you mentioned the long-term care situation. It's well documented, you, and we've talked about this many times on the show, uh, that there's a, a handful of, of very influential former progressive conservative staffers and politicians that are involved in that industry right now. And, and, and I think there's some reasonable questions being asked right now. Is that why he's reticent to actually bring the hammer down and impose the regulations that are needed in situations like that? Uh, the omnibus bill that he brought out, I guess, a month or so ago, that basically was going to gut conservation authorities and, and threaten the green belt. I mean, you know, that it just didn't make any sense. But, you know, is he listening to the wrong people now and getting his advice from them and following that advice? Well, Bill, it's not – it's difficult to – to come to any other conclusion but that. Uh, the fact that they, you know, the government and used the cloak of, of the pandemic to, you know, bring in that omnibus bill to gut conservation authorities and, in, and make it easier for ministers to, to use their ministerial power, if you will, to over, override any local uh, decisions with with respect to planning i mean that i think is really stuck in the craw of a lot of people here here we the guy you know the, the government was doing well Ford was high in, in in the popularity polls and then they come along and do something like that and to your point you wonder who's he listening to mm-hmm. because is he listening to the doctors and the nurses who are working in long-term care homes? Uh, it's just it's, it raises so many red flags, and I'm sure that you know there may, there may be an explanation in there somewhere, but I'll be damned if I can find it. 
Well, and therein lies the problem. And now, as you say, people are becoming more critical. I mean, we're into the second wave now, and, you know, he's, he's issued the lockdown. Uh, and, well, you've heard the criticisms. First of all, why are you waiting till Boxing Day? If it's a crisis, it should have happened right away. Uh, why are you letting the big box stores stay open and the little guys, the small businesses that really need help, are basically going to be penalized for this? I, I mentioned on my commentary this morning, ski hills right across the province are shut down. Uh, this is the this is the this is their time of year where they make money. You can go snowshoeing, you can go cross country skiing, you can go ice skating. But apparently, if you go down a hill, it's illegal. I mean, you know, where's the rationale for some of this stuff? And I think people have some legitimate beefs now. Well, you're you're right about in the you know the um, what you're kind of driving at, and I think a bit is what I would I would like to raise is. The transparency issue, and I yeah, know that you, yeah. you've dealt with this before, but the point is that you know the you know the uh, Amazon and Costco and others you know can can stay open, and uh, they're not they're not they're they're not affected by the the lockdown. Well, we can't find out how many of their employees are sick. We can't, you know, the Hamilton, the health unit is not telling people where, who's, who's died and, uh, you know, how old they were and saying it's a privacy issue to tell a person that was, you know, a, a, a male died who was, you know, let's say 65 years old in a long-term care home or so on and so forth. It's, it's difficult to respond if you're not getting the information, and that's that's what's happening here, I I don't understand this this so-called secrecy that the health units and even the province seems to impose that we don't have a right to know what's going on. That yeah, that's uh... really I I I I think that stinks beyond having that one. Well, just there seems to be some backsliding in the last couple of months, and you know, I guess time will tell us whether or not it's going to continue through the into the new year or not. Uh, we'll have to leave it here. We're just about out of time. Uh, again, thanks so much for your contributions, uh, Richard. Always great to have you on the program. Great to get your perspective on this, and uh, all the best. Merry Christmas and a happy New Year to you and you and the family. Oh, thank you very much. Same to you, Bill, and uh, always happy to come on. You betcha. We'll talk again soon. Bye bye. Richard Brennan, a retired journalist, of course, who covered Queens Park for many, many years. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.